So a lot of people ask, like, why do you make old fashioned paper books? Why don't you make an app? But I think there is something very profound about like stories and books that human humans have always understood. And I think it's really fascinating to think about how can we extrapolate all, all of these things that we've learned about online communities to the offline world and vice versa. Hello and welcome to the community podcast by CoMatter, a show that explores how people connect, share and create in today's hyperspeed world. My name is Severin Matosek. This is episode eight. And today's guest on the show is Linda Lucas. Linda is a children's book author and the creator of Hello Ruby, a book that teaches children about the whimsical world of computers, technology and coding. Hello Ruby was the first children's book that raised $380,000 on Kickstarter and is published in over 24 languages today. Without further ado, here's episode eight of the community podcast with Linda Lucas. I think my first experience with computers goes all the way back to the early 90s when my dad brought home like a laptop computer and it was his work computer must have cost a lot of money at the time and my dad did something that a lot of other parents weren't really willing to do uh, he told us that like there's nothing you can do with the computer that can't be undone and for a lot of other kids the computer was something that belonged to the adults it was expensive it broke easily do not touch Whereas for us, a computer was always something that we could mess around with and tinker with. And as a result, I think we destroyed a few times the operating system and wiped out all of dad's files. But we also developed a pretty fearless and curious attitude towards computers. Okay. And uh, how old were you at this age? I think I was seven or eight. Okay. And what kind of computer was it? It was a Windows computer, Windows 3.11 and... Uh, like a Pentium maybe that's the thing I like I wasn't part of that generation who actually got to build computers and yeah like tinker with them my experience with a computer was more about like creating so I'm kind of that generation mm. that learned word processing and MS Paint and stuff like that as their first mm -hmm. experience into computing yeah and I'm, I'm interested in that because I just read um, uh, an article about you on Fast Company that came out I think in 2015 um, when you launched your Kickstarter campaign mm -hmm. and there was this quote from you that, that that said you know nowadays with Tumblr and with Pinterest it's all about curating not really creating mm -hmm. and that story seems like you grew up with computers as a way you had to create something in order to find this fun and entertaining. Do you think this was the foundation of, of how you see computers and the internet today as well? I think at least the foundation of how I see the internet, because uh, the internet was still the Wild West in the like late 90s uh, for a kid. So you mm. needed to create the structures and the platforms you wanted to use. And uh, there was this sense of um, you could be anyone or anything Uh, go anywhere in the world, which was really exhilarating for someone mm. who was growing up in the suburbs. That being said, I think uh, the computer itself, it was already pretty retained, uh, like the operating system was already there, the files, the mm -hmm. games. So I grew up being a little bit nostalgic even for the previous generation who, mm -hmm. who had the experience of actually like working with the machine, whereas I already felt more abstracted away from the computer. Yeah, but you just mentioned that um, as a as a kid on the suburbs. So so was the computer and what you found on the internet kind of like your gateway into like an, a whole wide world <laughs> of exciting things. And how how was yeah. that? Yeah, um, 
Absolutely. I think internet was magical and for a generation of kids whose like life was smaller and smaller. So we weren't allowed to run away in the like city centers or stuff like mm-hmm. that. So our experience was really contained. Uh, I think internet offered us a like chance to experience um, going anywhere and everywhere. And it was still something that was explainable. So I've sometimes thought about how do you explain the internet for this new generation of kids who've never pressed mm. the disconnect button. For us, mm-hmm. the internet was still something that was um sort of explainable mm-hmm. and uh what were what were your first experiences uh, for me personally it was for example hanging out in online forums talking to people <laughs> with weird usernames yes playing online hyper. games <laughs> yeah <laughs> what was your username I, hyper hyper then, okay uh there was this like kids chat forum called Kidscom. And -hmm. I think that was one of the beautiful things about the internet of the 90s, because it allowed us to experiment with a lot of different identities and the anonymity made it Mm. possible to sort of sometimes be a boy and sometimes be a girl. And um, yeah, it's it's very different than the internet the kids grow up today. Mm -hmm. So what's the main difference to the internet today? I think you're more... your offline personality drags with you and you don't have this sense of being anyone out there. So you mean there's no there's no difference between who you are online and who you are offline. It's all it's all interconnected and there's not such a split between online life and 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 real life. Yeah, sometimes the online life can be equally um like stuff that happens online can be as scary or as exhilarating or fun as the stuff that happens on the school ground. Whereas Mm. for my generation, there was a clearer split. Obviously like my online communities back then meant a lot to me, uh, but it was still just a part of my identity and actually a place where I could like uh, experiment with my identity. Yeah, I see. And, and and what happened then? So so let's say there's there's young Linda uh, somewhere <laughs> in in Finland um, being online like a lot of us of that same generation. And at some point, I think you 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 had a website about El Gore. Mm. Um, maybe you also want to tell us about that because I think you recently mm-hmm. met Re- El Gore in real life, right? So what happened? <laughs> I'll, I'll go even a little bit further back. I think there's a bunch of things that really like influence and shape the way I see the internet nowadays. So Mm -hmm. first of them was definitely online gaming. Um, One of my like biggest identities beyond like the one I have today uh, was the identity of a Jedi Knight. And her name was Sabe Sunrider. And it was this like IRC based, uh, like online text-based role-playing system where we created kind of the, the universe. And I learned about commerce and law and um like astrophysics and geography and it was this very very real experience of Mm. of of like being a jedi knight out there Mm -hmm. and i think that experience of the internet as a universe uh kind of bled into the way i see it still today so that was the first Mm -hmm. metaphor of internet and and that was what year was that approximately 2000 early 2000s okay Okay. And then the Al Gore story. So mm. Al Gore ran um, to be a president of the United States. I think it was 2001. And 
for some reason I got really obsessed with him and like a lot of girls of my generation at the time they they really loved Legolas from Lord of the Rings or there was this heavy metal band girls really liked called him or love metal I think oh, yeah. it was called yeah of and... course I know him was, <laughs> yeah. was the biggest export of Finland yes back in the yes. days yeah <laughs> <laughs> so Villavala was really big at the time mm. but I was maybe a little bit more eccentric and I I've always rooted for the underdog and Al Gore was the underdog of the election and I don't know what it was but I really sort of fell in love with him and first I did the things that teenage girls do I collected pictures and like interviews and made a scrapbook but then at some point I felt that there's got to be something bigger and more sort of meaningful that I can do so I made a website for him and as a mm -hmm. result I needed to learn HTML and CSS and PHP to kind of give form to this vision I had and the website was in Finnish and it was still the time that you could like look up from Alta Vista all of the search results for mm -hmm. Al Gore so yeah. I remember very specifically like uh, translating different interviews into Finnish and making a photo gallery and first like painstakingly resizing the photos manually and then realizing that oh wow like you can use PHP to programmatically resize the mm. photos for a photo gallery and what was your intention with that website did you did you want to get noticed by Al Gore for the <laughs> website or did you want to build up a fan club of other Al Gore fans no, in Finland or just, worldwide it was mostly expressing myself somehow mm -hmm. like making a dent in the universe and showing that like this is who I am and it's a really mm -hmm. powerful experience I did get visitors that was still the time when you had guest books yeah. on websites. So I remember having a guest book, but it was l less about the like people, more about the fact that I could like project to the world. Yeah, but but did, did this experience translate into your real life? Did you go to school and tell your friend, hey, I made a <laughs> website about El, about El Gore? Or was it this thing that happened after school in your second life online? Uh, no, no, it, it definitely overlapped with my real life. Okay. And I'm still surprised today that I wasn't bullied out of my mind yeah. at the time. Um, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. My I don't think my parents really knew what I was doing online, like the whole mm -hmm. Jedi Knight adventures and the Al Gore stuff. But I can track back a lot of the things that I do online and as a career right now, back to the teenage girl years. And there's this weird sentiment about like teenage girls, how everything they do, it's stupid or silly, or if mm -hmm. something is really like um, bad, it's, it's meant for a teenage girl. Whereas I mm -hmm. feel like I was very emphatic. Um, I cared a lot about things. I, Uh, I had a lot of free time to sort of express myself. And in some ways, I think world would be much better if there were more teenage girls in it. Mm -hmm. But do you think that if you would have grown up in today's world with, with the possibilities that we have today with Instagram and Snapchat and, and whatever other apps and services there are out there, would, would you have perceived the internet and, and your, your creativity within that differently? Yeah, that's a good question. In some ways, I feel like the current generation is so much more, they have so much more choice and opportunity. Like if I'm the generation of Spice Girls, the current generation is the generation of Lady Gaga. And yeah, yeah it, it is different. That being said, I think there was this beauty of internet being a universe as opposed to like a, uh, 
I don't know what the metaphor today is, a runway or mm. <laughs> like a, a copy machine. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think the, one of the main differences, having grown up in the same area as you and, and also created my own websites, to what I see today is that obviously the internet is much more commercialized today. So mm -hmm. it feels like our actions are being triggered a lot by what advertisers want us to do or what platforms want us to see. So it's much more intertwined with commercialism in, in, in a good way or a bad way. I'm not judging, but I think that's mm -hmm. for me one of the main differences. What do you think? Absolutely. Okay. Um, so tell me then what happened. What I'm interested in is, um, I think it was 2001, 2002 when you started this page about Al Gore yep. and, and now it's 2017 <laughs> and I think you finally met him in person yes. now. So how was that? So I think there's these circles in life that open and then they close. And this has been like a circle that has been going for 17 years, mm -hmm. uh, there's been moments when I've been like one or two persons removed from Mr. Gore. Uh, but yes, I met him at Slush um, in November. And I think I was hyperventilating. And mm -hmm. his response to my whole sort of, you changed my life, you changed my career. It's because of you that I do the things I do today was, oh gosh. <laughs> uh, uh, did he know who you were? No, no. No. And then did you did you have a conversation with him? like a three minute conversation where I was out of breath most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> but it feels but, great to meet your mm -hmm. childhood idols. I was a little bit worried if I would be like, I don't know, uh, disappointed or, or something, but nope. No, but do you feel like, do you, do you feel that, that this chapter of 17 years is now closed to an yes. end because you finally met him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can move on to other things. You can finally put that website offline now. Yes. Or... <laughs> I think that's the, thing that has kind of like um, been a recurring theme in my life. Uh, there's this uh, saying called like, I'm the shipwreck of my own wanderings. And I'd have, I've had a lot of wanderings. And then there's mm -hmm. this other thing that like Steve Jobs said that uh, you can only connect the dots looking backwards and mm -hmm. you need to connect lots of different kinds of dots and yada, yada. Uh, so I don't know. I, I think this, this circle or dot or constellation has been now formed for the time being but who knows mm -hmm. yeah but do you think uh, last question regarding El Gore now but <laughs> do you think could it have been anyone back in 2001 that you made a fan page about could it have been Steve Jobs could it have been the Spice Girls or was there something where you now say 17 years yeah. later there was a reason why it was El Gore and it still inspires me today to some extent so I I do think about that because at the time he wasn't a Nobel laureate he wasn't uh, an Oscar winner. He was only the vice president. Um, but I, in all honesty, I think it could have been anyone. There was okay. energy in me that like was looking for an outlet. And yeah, I see. was a good uh, outlet for that, but it could have been mm -hmm. someone else too. Okay. Um, so let's jump 10 years forward in, in your life. Um, I think in 2010, you co-founded Rails Girls, mm. um, which became a worldwide community of, of, of people um, teaching each other code and, and girls being able to learn code and understanding more about um, how to code their own websites. And it's now, I think, in over 160 cities. And um, what I'm interested in is, A, how did you found it? Why, where did the idea come from? And, and what was the journey of, of growing it and making it an international movement? Yeah. So Rails Girls was founded by my own need. 
um, I was studying in Stanford University for a semester and really fell in love with the sort of tech uh, world of 2009-2010. I didn't study computer science in university. I had kept fiddling with code throughout my teenage years, but ended up in business school, which I absolutely hated. Mm-hmm. And again, I was looking for an outlet for all of this creativity. I and mean, in Stanford, obviously, you are surrounded by wonderful tech companies. And at the time, like this whole rhetoric around technology companies changing the world felt really mm-hmm. fresh and new. So how did, you, how, did you, how did you end up at Stanford? It was just an exchange semester that yeah. you could do from your university in yeah. Finland? So it was a product design course where we had this cross-disciplinary team of electrical engineers and um, industrial designers and mechanical engineers and me, a business student. And in Stanford, I had nothing else to do in the team okay. uh, because it was still in the product development mode. So I figured that, okay, I can at least like make the homepage for this project mm-hmm. or or so. So I ended up learning programming over there and then moved back to Helsinki, Finland, where no one else at the time was speaking about programming. There were a lot of like communities for learning social media skills and stuff like that, but no sort of peer support group for programming. Mm-hmm. So that's how Rails Girls got started. It was me and Kari Saarinen. Um, Kari used to work for a Rails consultancy called Kisco Labs, who Uh, sponsored the first event so that's why we chose rails as the Mm -hmm. framework uh, which is not a very sort of beginner friendly framework but we figured that we wanted to give um, beginners this experience of being able to build something really quickly over a course of a weekend Uh, less about the theory more about just the craft Um, make something that you can show to your colleagues and co-workers on Monday and say that I made this happen so there was this philosophical idea of like Uh, first of all, like showing what programming is like, uh, creating a community of like-minded women, and then also like exposing these beginners to their local Ruby or Rails community so that Mm -hmm. when you go to a technical event, uh, you would have a friendly face there. And uh, the first event was done in like two weeks. Uh, I remember we made tomato soup because it was the cheapest food we could figure mm-hmm. out. Yeah. The curriculum was done uh, the day before and uh, it was mostly for like a group of our friends and then for me to have like a, a group of like-minded people who were learning programming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that started with you, both of you being in Helsinki and having the first event. Yeah. How, how did it then <laughs> grow into other cities? Uh, by luck and uh, by time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first part is luck. D- David Heinemeyer Hansen, the creator of Rails, he tweeted about the event. Ah, okay. And uh, he said that, oh, like cool things are happening in Helsinki. Because this was the time when uh, like learning to code wasn't yet like this whole uh, mainstream thing. Mm. So we got a call from Singapore from a local Ruby guy who said that, oh, you should come to Singapore and do this event over here. And uh, we had no budget. We had no Mm -hmm. idea of like whether the curriculum made any sense. Uh, And we had never been to Singapore. But at the time we were students and uh, we had never been to Singapore. So we really wanted to go and decided to sort of make the jump and really got excited about the event and saw how it worked in practice in a totally new kind of culture and then the other factor is time like Rails Girls has been going on for nine years 
Um, and in nine years, a lot can happen. I think a lot of the mm. times we're under this idea that like meaningful things happen overnight and like explosive growth and, and so forth. But I think the success of Rails Girls is, is a big part of like the idea that things grow over time and the compound effect can be really big. Mm-hmm. And for how long was this ever a full-time job for you no. or was it always <laughs> something on the side? Yeah, I think um, Rails Girls has been like a w- interesting project because at the very beginning when it started to catch fire and there were like um, 40, 50 new events every year organized, a lot of people came to me and said that, okay, like how are you going to make this into a business? Like, mm. is this going to be licensed and or this is going to be like a non-profit thing? And I always felt that Rails Girls ought to be as free and wild as the internet itself and it really relied on the local communities and the grassroots sort mm-hmm. of initiatives and also I didn't want to create a structure for the sake of structure so I like spoke with some people at Startup Weekend and these other sort of initiatives that have created um, structures around these grassroots movements but I realized that there's other things in life that I want to do and that hopefully this is a problem that will be solved pretty soon that it will be equally like weird to think that women couldn't get excited about programming as it would be to think that women mm-hmm. can't learn English or uh, German or Swedish mm-hmm. so um, I deliberately kept the Rails Girls community very open-ended and I also define success for Rails Girls in a way that like one day we won't need Rails Girls anymore and that's success not that we like uh, grow the amount of women uh, year over year or the amount of events we do that the goal yeah. the end goal is to have a more diverse colorful and exciting ruby and rails community mm-hmm. so that's why rails Girls was never a full-time job and still today like i consider myself the chief cheerleader of the community mm-hmm. i introduce new people uh, but there's so many people who ask like so what is the impact how many people have gone through the training program like should you make more follow-up workshops and that's just not what I want to do. Yeah, I see. But that's interesting, I think, because uh, what you say is true. Everything, even, you know, a community is measured by so many other things than the mere quantity of participants and whatever. It's usually the metric that people look for. Mm -hmm. And it's also like what I, you know, what what sticks in my mind is obviously, wow, Rails Girls is in 160 countries. So how did you do that? So these numbers are, we're always driven by defining success by by quantity and by numbers, I think. and also longevity i think it makes sense to measure success in some ways over time um that like not everything happens overnight but at the same time like at the era of internet it shouldn't be um impossible to just stop a project or close it down and i think craig Maud has written beautifully about this um like what do you do with a community that has served its time already that mm-hmm. has sort of served its purpose and there's some beautiful examples online on, on how like people have open sourced what they've learned or like the underlying technology or code that powered the said community. And I don't know, with in- internet is somehow ephemeral. So the communities ought to be like that too. Not everything needs to exist forever. 
Yeah, but I guess that was for you an important question when running Rails Girls in the beginning. How long do you want to do this? How much do you want to give into it? And when when is the time for you to let go? Because mm. as you said, you could still be you could basically run Rails Girls full time now. Probably Absolutely. find funding for it. Yep. What was the decision to not do that and and focus on other things at some point in your life? So. I went to work at Code Academy, and that was kind of a like a natural way of letting go also of some of the real skill stuff. Uh, but I think the biggest moment was when I realized that I wasn't really needed, that there were like other people who were doing the work much better, and it hurt a lot to let go. I felt like okay. no one else can do real skills as well as mm. I do, and uh, but I just ran out of time and. Um, I couldn't anymore travel to all of the places where it was organized. And I realized that like I'm the bottleneck in, in growing this community. And Yeah, but I find it very interesting because that means you definitely had this sense of ownership of mm -hmm. saying this is how these events should take place. I'm coming. I booked my flight. I'll be there. <laughs> so you wanted to take care that everything runs smoothly, but at some yeah. point probably realized it's not scalable like that and people yep. can run it on their own anyway. Yeah, and it meant like dealing with graphic design I wasn't really happy with or slogans that I was felt a little bit <laughs> with. Mm. Uh, but it also meant that some wonderful initiatives like uh, Rails Girls Summer of Code uh, were born and, and people really took ownership of what they were doing. And it allowed me also to pursue other things in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In this process, did you, did you, did you come up with guidelines with guides on how people can host their own events you know trying to scale this in a way that you mm. don't have to be everywhere and have to look at everything by giving people a toolkit and the and the means to yeah. co-create this thing themselves did you work on that yeah i i think that was one of the smartest things we did in the first two years of rail skills um i think we called it open sourcing rail skills uh, but what it basically was was a really rigorous documentation of all the elements we felt were important in organizing a rail skills event and that comes from the sort of programming and technical community side where this kind of work is really um like usual or normal uh but in addition to sort of like this is how you teach the curriculum we also paid a lot of attention to this is how you speak to the people this is how you communicate what you're doing mm. uh, this is how you communicate to the sponsors so sort of the softer side of things and i think it was really important yeah mm -hmm. and those guides are still online and so the, the guides that you did established in 2010 or 2012 are still online and people yeah. still use it. It still works. So you, you de yeah. developed something once and you did it well, apparently, and, yeah. and it still it still works now. Yeah, there's a GitHub repository where people uh, send translations, they modify the guides and it's still going. But I think I've let go of the idea that, oh, it needs to go on forever. Um, so my yeah. success doesn't look like, oh, how many like Rails Girls events year over year we have. It's more like, what is the impact that the world needs at this point? Mm -hmm. Then let's talk about impact, because I, <laughs> I think your life today is, is very much different than it was uh, eight or nine years ago when you did Rails Girls. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to know... Tell a little bit about this year, about your travels, about your talks, about what, what is a year like in the life of Linda Lucas uh. in, in 2017? <laughs> um, so I'm definitely in my dream job, but it can be like a blessing and a curse. Uh, I feel very fortunate that I found the intersection where I want to be working on. And it's kind of like technology and 
education and art, childhood, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Uh, currently, I identify as a children's book author and illustrator. So that's my primary job uh, to write and illustrate the world of technology, whether it's about mm-hmm. coding or computers or internet or AI. Um, but I don't know what the future will look like. Then the other component of my work is uh, speaking about the work I do, inspiring mm-hmm. teachers and business people and developers to kind of rekindle the excitement around technology we many mm-hmm. of us grew up with. And how, how did you get started in this in this career of, of speaking? <laughs> so ooh, um, accidentally again, mm-hmm. I worked at Code Academy, as mentioned, and that's where I felt that, oh, wow, like uh, I went from rail skills, which was still a very sort of local grassroots uh, event series uh, to Code Academy, which had like little less than a million users when I joined. And I felt that, wow, like we're creating this platform where people around the world can really like scalably learn programming. And I learned a ton of community uh, related things uh, during uh, and while at Code Academy about the different roles a community requires. Uh, but in the end, I just missed home too much. Code Academy yeah. was based in New York and I wanted to move back to Helsinki. I had this weird like fall where I did all these miscellaneous freelancing jobs and was trying to f- trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. And while I was studying computer science, every time I would run into like a thing I didn't understand, I would imagine how a six-year-old little girl would explain the concept. Mm-hmm. And throughout the years from Rail Skills to Code Academy, I had kept this little girl character in the margins of my computer science books. Mm-hmm. Um, and because Ruby was my kind of primary language I was uh, learning, yeah. Ruby uh, became the name of the character. And I started to have these like um, imagined stories around the world of technology, which I felt really colorful and whimsical and wonderful. But for a lot of other people, technology was like black and green and logical mm-hmm. and machine-like. Mm-hmm. And I had moved back to Helsinki. There were no jobs here. I was drawing every morning. And then I decided to make a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. And the Kickstarter campaign to, in 2014 uh, was supposed to be a self-funded book art side project thingy uh, but blew up um, and I think it was almost $400,000 wow. that the campaign for this more whimsical way to see the world of technology project mm-hmm. gathered and I became a children's book author overnight mm-hmm. and um, I don't know the past three years have been me figuring out how to kind of uh, yeah, build this profession, and a lot mm-hmm. of it is done by talking to people mm-hmm. and sort of uh, reflecting. But I'm interested in more details about this Kickstarter project. Because <laughs> I, I I think a lot of people, a lot of times, you ask somebody, "How did you raise one million dollars on Kickstarter?" Yeah. And you know, they said, "Oh, it was just supposed to be this personal thing, you know," and then it blew up. So, and sometimes it can happen. Sometimes you know, there's agencies or strategies behind it that people just don't talk about. So, is it really yeah. true that you just put this on Kickstarter and 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 wanted some friends of yours to fund your first book project, and then suddenly someone discovered it? Or what 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 was the process of yeah. this becoming bigger than you intended? So you're absolutely right. It's 
it's like a <laughs> true and false answer at the same time. I never anticipated that the project would become that big. Uh, if I had known how much like heartache <laughs> this project uh, had when I started it, I probably wouldn't have had the guts to do it. Uh, that being said, there was a lot of uh, preparation that went into running the Kickstarter campaign, and I was really intentional in the way I built it. Um, I Code Academy was in the same portfolio as Kickstarter, so Union Square Ventures was the like uh, VC that funded both of us. So I had met some of the Kickstarter people and I had taken part in some of their workshops. And in 2014, Kickstarter wasn't yet like the, uh, it had some big successes, but it wasn't the go-to platform yet. So a lot of the Kickstarter people really encouraged me. I read a lot of stories. Uh, I read Greg Mott's um, project, Jack Cheng had made a book project at that point. Robin mm -hmm. Sloan had made a book project. So I had these role models who had also rigorously documented what they did. And then I had rail skills. Mm -hmm. So this is where kind of the idea that people told me that, oh, you should um, make money by this or make money off this uh, project really paid off because rail skills didn't end up being the the sort of the business, but Rails Girls was the community that helped me uh, create the interest around uh, Hello Ruby and sort of mm. sparked um, the first uh, few days of, of funding uh, okay. into it. And they also trusted me. And I think that's mm. that trust is like one of the hardest things in Kickstarter. Uh, either you have need to have a huge budget and like a professional uh, marketing um, agency, or then you need to have a big a global community of people who trust you. Mm -hmm. And uh, you mentioned that uh, the, the preparation for the Kickstarter project was quite intense. So I believe you you put in a lot of thought and energy into the right graphics, the right words, maybe making a nice video that really explains mm -hmm. it. Um, what do you think? What is the secret sauce that <laughs> that you that you applied both to Rails Girls and, and your Kickstarter project. Is there anything where you see this is a common this is a common factor. This is, you know, what I really believe makes a difference in a project becoming successful, meaning people wanna be part of it, people wanna support you, people wanna do these things themselves. What do you think? I think it's twofold. I've always been like ready to step into my own curiosity and I think all of my projects reflect uh, the worldview I have and sort of project uh, the ideals and the vision I have about the world, whether it's like super cutesy or whimsical or fun or mm. exciting. And I think, think people recognize that and it resonates with them, uh, that mm -hmm. authenticity. And then the other part um, is that I always start things way before I'm ready. So mm -hmm, I'm okay. like, I'm ashamed of the stuff that is on the Kickstarter campaign still. I think the graphics look horrible there. I've learned so much in the past four years. Same with Rails Girls. We had no idea um, whether the curriculum was any good and we didn't have like degrees in computer science or pedagogy. Uh, but I've always been ready to put out like a horrible first version. And I think that's also something people resonate to. Uh, that they see something grow and develop and uh, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I find it interesting because I, I thought that uh, from your previous description, you were more like perfectionistic. Um, you, know, <laughs> you said, no, so you're not at all. You're more, how would it, how would it describe your, your, your particular style? Is it chaotic? Is uh, it, what it's think? absolutely chaotic. I didn't know how to draw when I started the Kickstarter campaign. And hopefully, like, hopefully you see my sort of big vision shine through the crappy graphics. Uh, but I'm still learning as I go. I feel like the way I see the world is like through squinted eyes. So mm. I know where I want to go and I know what perfect looks like. But I just know that you also need to put out like a bad first version uh, in mm-hmm. order to sort of develop your skill. Uh, my hand is always worse than my mind. Um, and that's just something I've needed to come to okay. terms with. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think what's underlying is that you must have, you must be quite self-confident. You must, you know, you, because what you, what you say, you know, to put things out there and maybe they're not perfect and to just go with it. That also means you have to be confident of about yourself. You have to be confident with putting yourself out there. You have to be confident to respond to criticism. And I would say that a lot of people out there probably are scared of that. Yeah. So have you ever been scared? Have you ever been scared <laughs> to to put yourself out there, to go on stage, to to say, this is my name, this is my project, these are my illustrations that I done last night? You know, uh, not the moments when I put something out. And I think that's, again, uh, the childhood of, like, the childhood internet where, like, you were anonymous and you could do stuff and, experiment and try out but I've definitely been afraid when things start to grow so I think the kickstarter ought to have been like a big champion moment for me when like all of these years of work culminated into this like financially uh seemingly very successful project but my like first reaction was to panic because I had no idea how to actually make the book or like I had a vision but I had didn't have the craft to like how to do it and mm. the two years after the kickstarter campaign were probably the worst in my life because as in any community you have like people who support you know whether matter what but you also have like very vocal and strong critics who are obviously disappointed in you mm. and now in hindsight i can see that like uh the like all of the pain i felt was relatively like small that like the book shipped, it was a year late, but it still shipped. It was like, okay for a Kickstarter mm-hmm. campaign. But I definitely, definitely felt horrible for like for a few two years. Okay. Uh, and afraid also. Mm-hmm. There was, I, 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 I read somewhere that there was also this thing where in the end you, you went on to publish the book with a publisher and yeah. that some of your Kickstarter backers didn't like that. Yeah. What, what happened there? Yeah. So... In some ways, I think it's my biggest strength that I'm ready to put things out, like uh, not fully formed. And it draws the imagination of some people who want to sort of join me on the journey of figuring out what this blob is about, a blob of an idea. Um, That's the same with the book. I knew nothing about publishing when I first started the project. I figured that I'm going to self-publish because that's what I had seen other Kickstarter projects do. Mm -hmm. but then pretty soon I realized that, oh, wow, like I need a lot of help to make 
the book that I had in my mind uh, because I felt that I have one shot of making this right, which I've later come to realize that you actually have multiple shots in your life. And if you're lucky, you get to do the things you care about for a long time. Uh, but at the time, I felt a lot of pressure. So I needed an editor. I needed someone to help me with the graphics. I needed someone to help me with the logistics of like printing and everything. And Macmillan uh, felt like a really good partner in doing that. Mm-hmm. Publishing is a weird industry because there's not a lot of, like, internet is really good at unbundling skills and professions. But for Mm -hmm. publishing at the time, the ecosystem wasn't really there. Like, you couldn't really hire an editor and a graphics person and this and this and this. So, yeah. uh, Yeah. And so, I still so stand behind the, the choice of, of yeah. using a publisher. I think it helps mm-hmm. me reach audiences who wouldn't necessarily trust uh, a mm-hmm. self-published author. Uh, and the book became pretty good. Mm-hmm. And and do you feel that um, the, the people who complained at this point, um, the, were you able to regain their trust? Were you able to explain why you made those decisions? and uh, Or are they lost forever and they, they're still looking back and say, I would never back a project by Linda again? I think so. I think it's the latter. And that's mm-hmm. something you just have to come in terms with that not like there's no way that everyone can love you. And mm-hmm. hearing the criticism from the people who uh, you self-select as people who matter to you uh, is the thing that matters to me. So mm-hmm. I don't really get like bothered if Hacker News thinks that I smile too much or that yeah. like uh, whatever my programming skills are not there. Uh, but I do care if the kids say that, oh, this is boring or like, I don't like this character or teachers say that they find my work confusing. So like figuring out who your audience or who your core community is and um, dedicating a lot of time and effort to them and pleasing them, but also shielding yourself uh, from like mm-hmm. harsh criticism because yeah. on the internet, you definitely run into that too. Yeah. Is this something that's part of your of your books and of your education to 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 children that, uh, you know, in the Internet world, anyone can criticize you and and you have to develop filters and and ways to deal with it? Just because I think that the fact we are so much out there nowadays and and young people with Instagram and with self-representation, there's a lot of studies about how people get anxious and 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 unconfident because they're, they're, they think they're not perfect because we all are not perfect, right? So mm. what you said, I think, is a very important skill for, for anyone to have nowadays because there's so much out there. Mm. Yeah, I, especially if you're a young woman who has an opinion on the internet, you're bound to attract a lot of really malicious people and just knowing how to like shut down that criticism uh, from hurting you is is something that I've I've definitely needed to learn. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, tell me about these travels that you've done this year. So I wonder how it works because <laughs> you, you've done a TED talk in 2015, which yeah. obviously uh, it was very good. It also helps to, to, to show people that you can actually talk on stage and that you, you, know, you have a public profile and, and people love inviting you. But how does it mm-hmm. work? You, you get invited to conferences around the world, um, to talks, do you have an assistant that books your flights? Is it all <laughs> no. yourself? How do you split your time between travel, travels, and, uh. and being in health? What's what? What are the details of of your life uh, this year? I think there's this like funny yearly clock that I run. So first of all, I've written uh, three books in three years, which is kind of like a fast 
pace. Uh, so I usually spend the springs writing, and in order to sort of make it uh, to the publishing cycle, you need to return the manuscript by midsummer, mm-hmm. and then it comes the next year or something like that out. So springs I write, falls I talk about what I write. Uh, this is in principle, in practice, it's all a mess. Um, <laughs> I'm yeah. a one person company. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a long time, again, I felt that like success means that you employ a lot of people or you do a lot of different projects. Uh, with Hello Ruby, uh, I tried to do a school, I tried to do an app, um, I tried to like create immediately a teacher curriculum, and then I realized that what is the rush? <laughs> like, why am I in such a constant uh, like anxiety mode where I just take too much on my plate? And now I'm maximizing freedom so i realized that i'm really really lucky that i get to work on something that i care so much uh i hope that i get to work on ruby for the next i don't know 20 years or so there's a lot that i want to do uh but i'm also sort of cognizant um about the fact that i get to do the things that i care about doing not necessarily managing other people but like creating the artwork and speaking and learning so mm-hmm. that's why I'm a one-person studio. It um, takes away pressure from like making uh, the payrolls and all of the cash flow stuff and so forth. And speaking turns out to be a wonderful way to also supplement income. Uh, book mm-hmm. Publishing is not the most um, like profitable business out there. So I know a lot of other uh, book people or authors do also this. So they speak in my case it's funny because i get to speak to boardrooms and uh like business executives and developers but then also teachers and kids and bookstores mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. a fun mix so so does it mean that you deliberately made a decision that instead of saying i've got something going on here and i have more and more inbound interest which means i can hire more people i can grow mm-hmm. this you said i rather say no to some opportunities in order to maintain my personal freedom that's important to me and only do the things that I really care about. Yes. So I, coming from sort of the startup and tech scene uh, of Helsinki, there was some pressure on me to kind of take funding and grow this thing. And and everyone who suggested these things to me were really like well-meaning, but in the end, it's you who needs to live your life. And I tried, but I really like, failed miserably at being a CEO and uh, creating that structure. Whereas I'm really, really good as an author, artist, illustrator. Mm. And I've started to look at people like Björk and Olafur Eliasson and a bunch Mm. of others, just like how they create the structures that allow them to do the work that they find meaningful, as opposed to kind of going into this role where other people tell you what is important and impactful. Mm-hmm. So you see yourself more of an artist rather than an entrepreneur or CEO. Yeah, yeah. I will see. <laughs> okay. I do want to still like start the school at some point, but yeah. What what school? Like a primary school. Oh, uh, really? Because the funny thing is I'm mostly maybe known for like teaching kids to code. Mm. Uh, but I think what I do is far more like far reaching i think i'm trying to sort of create the montessori of the 21st century like how do we explain the entire world of technology and computers for mm. kids um 
was surrounded by it. So it's not only coding, but it's also the ethical questions around AI. It's the networks, the internet, uh, the computers, everything. Mm. No, I, I I think that's very interesting. And my personal view on on I haven't read the entire Hello Ruby book, but I've I've seen your website and I've done my research. Mm. And also from from the things that you said, I think what you found with you know your own personal exploration of Ruby and and inventing ruby to explain these technology things to yourself is you found like a very human touch of explaining how the world works because the world increasingly works via mm. technology and i don't know any other project out there that does it <laughs> in that way and i think it's so important because we are still wired to understand stories from a storytelling perspective and not by a binary system of zeros mm. and ones so i think there's you're definitely onto something with that Yeah, and, and that's one of the things I really enjoy right now. I know I'm onto something, but I know don't know what the end result will look like. So I think it's kind of an exciting journey right now with this, like not knowing what's going to mm -hmm. happen. And then also the other perspective, I do a lot of unplugged work. So even though I come from sort of the tech and programming and computer work, a lot of the exercises and experiences I create for kids are about crafts and paper and pens and uh, like role playing and theater and stuff like that. Um, and I'm trying to take the stuff that I've learned from online communities into offline communities. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, for instance, a book, it's, um, it's like a campfire. You can gather people around a book and help them understand uh, what you're trying to communicate far easier than if you make a web service. So a lot of people ask, like, why do you make old fashioned paper books? Why don't you mm -hmm. make an app? But I think there is something very profound about like stories and books that human mm -hmm. humans have always understood. And I think it's really fascinating to think about how can we extrapolate all, all of these things that we've learned about online communities to the offline world mm -hmm. and vice and versa. Yeah, and speaking of which, so in hindsight, now we've we've reviewed your life over the last 20 <laughs> or 25 years, right? And you just mentioned yourself that your first experiences with computers and on the internet, on the internet were related to online communities, right? With these mm -hmm. IRC games and JD Masters. And I definitely see a red thread to what you've done with Rails Girls and now with a Kickstarter campaign and now how you run Hello Ruby as a, as a global operation. Um, how important are to you online communities and what do you think, what importance do they have in our everyday life mm. online and offline? So for me, profound impact. I wouldn't be able to do or run this company without uh, all of the people around the world who like give me ideas, who uh, support me and my work. Um, coming from a country of five million people, there's no market for the kind of philosophy I'm trying to create here. So I needed to build like a global company from the get-go. And uh, Hello Ruby's biggest markets right now are US and Japan. So like it's a, it's foundational to what I do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, my, what I personally think is that when we talk about technology and when we talk about the internet, it's a lot about technology aspects and artificial intelligence and, and, and coding. And that's kind of like what you always explain in your books. But 
when we talk about communities, we talk about human interaction between one, two, or many humans. So how do you how do you translate that into your books? Do you explain online communities per se to children in your books or in your workshops? So for instance, with the internet, I talk about how we humans talk to the computers and that's coding. And when computers talk to each other, that's protocols that form the internet like HTTP or mm -hmm. TCP IP. But then the craziest thing about the internet is the fact that computers allow us humans to talk to other humans. And that's kind of the free stages of, of online communities uh, mm. from a technical perspective I can think of. Then another thing I think is fascinating is how we talk about the internet. So from our generation, like I think the word community entered the internet folklore around the time of Flickr when like people started to really talk about online communities. But before that, the internet was like the super highway or the information highway. We talked about surfing online. Yeah. And I mm. think it's really fascinating what kind of metaphors we use about internet and the communities it inhabits um, in the Hello Ruby books, the kids make an internet, like a snow internet, a snow castle that resembles the internet. And there's the hardware layer and the software layer, but then also the cultural layer. But in some ways, like an internet could be also uh, a time capsule or a space shuttle or a copy machine or mm. so forth. And, and it's again, like the human ability to create metaphors and stories that is at play here. And it's something that we forget. We often think that technology is somehow neutral or um, somehow like comes to existence uh, perfect at the get-go, whereas mm -hmm. at the design stage, so there's so much values and ideals that humans build. And that's why the community at Facebook is very different than the community at, say, Flickr back in the day. Mm -hmm. um... Yeah, very nice. I think in the end, you are, you are possibly creating your own metaphor with Ruby. So yeah. maybe, you know, the children of this generation and next generation will talk about Ruby in, in as a way to explain things, right, mm -hmm. that are happening. Um, my, my final question would be, and I always ask these to people on my podcast, <laughs> what would, what, what's your advice? If someone comes to you, let's say a 15-year-old girl, say, I want to start... I want to make a pro I want to make a book. I want to put a project on the internet. I want to do something where I need people to support me through the internet. What would you what you, what what advice would you give them? What are your learnings of doing that? So first, there's no better time to do than right now. Um, it's an unprecedented opportunity for creative people to find their audience all around the world. Uh, we're not. Uh, like prohibited by these small suburbs where we uh, happen to um, mm -hmm. grow up in. So in some ways we have these ideas about um, Paris in the 20s and New York in the 30s or 40s and the internet is that it's this like beautiful creative community. And then the other thing I would say to the kids nowadays is just start with something small uh, and scrappy that next big and bold thing won't come from New York Times. It won't come from uh, big establishments. It will come from sort of the scrappy and uh, colorful and weird um, corners of the internet. And it doesn't need to be perfect. Uh, you'll have time to grow it into being perfect. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Well, great. Thank you then. <laughs> Thank you. That, that's it so far from the internet. Thanks for having, uh, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode of the Community Podcast, please share it, tell your friends about it, subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. It helps us to reach more people and more people to know more about communities and probably the world become a slightly better place if we collaborate, share and create more together. My name is Severin and you can find me at comatter.com, a platform that explores what makes communities thrive.